Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of How I'd Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. Nationwide, by your side, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place to go. Uh, if you want to hear the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, Kevin O'Sullivan and I have just been discussing the new appointment uh, of Grant Shapps, a man who has had so many jobs in the Cabinet. I think he's done more of them uh, than he's not done. Uh, he's had ministerial roles all over the place. His most recent one was Energy and Net Zero Department. Uh, he's now going to run... Uh, the Department of Defence, which you have to say is rather a big job and one which needs to be done by somebody with rather big shoes. And I'm not sure Grant Shapps is entirely the man. Isabel Oakshot's coming up, Talk TV's international editor. She's already given her verdict. These are dangerous times, she says. In choosing a new Defence Secretary, Rishi Sunak had his pick of people who know what they're talking about. Instead, he appoints someone with no relevant background, casually foolish, verging on irresponsible. Well, we've got a lot of history with Grant Shapps. We've got a lot of things we can talk about. Uh, we've got a lot of things that we know that he's said in the past. And one of the reasons for his continued success as a cabinet minister can only be put down to the fact that he does what he's told. Can only be put down to the fact that he's the bloke you send in if you want to try and sort out a department because you know that he will not say no to the boss. You know that he will not say boo to a goose. But he will continually appear on television and continually do interviews about how great everything is and how well he is doing. As I said to Kevin, very famously, he once said to me, don't you want to be the country which is the world leader in onshore wind? I said, no, I don't actually. I don't care. I just want cheap energy. He doesn't seem to get that. 0344-499-1000. And we'll be talking about judges getting new powers to force offenders to attend sentencing, even though they already had those powers and they just didn't know what to do with them. But the story that I think also is a massive one uh, is that the NHS has managed to kill off yet more people, people who are waiting on an NHS waiting list. More than half of all people who died in England last year were on an NHS waiting list. That's according to a story uh, in The Times this morning. And also more nonsense for Sadiq Khan. It was it would appear that Sadiq Khan uh, has been using a scientist who independently peer-reviewed a paper, uh, although the people that he was peer-reviewing were his own team at Imperial College, which seems a little bit close to home, does it not? 0344-499-1000. Rod Little coming up a little bit later on as well. We'll be talking to Ben Pyle. We'll be talking to Di Davis. It's the anniversary uh, of the death of Princess Diana. And of course... Prince Harry is back on the front pages because the veterans community is pretty annoyed with what he came out with and said on his new Invictus Games Netflix special. And of course, he's been bleating on about how nobody gave him any support, how nobody gave the veterans any support. Turns out that was complete nonsense and the veterans are pretty angry with him and they'd like to tell him so. 0344 499 1000. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I can't believe it's Thursday already. And worse than that, it's going to be the 1st of September. We have reached, I guess, the end of summer, haven't we? Where was it? Where did it come from? Where did it go? Um, and I guess we just have to prepare for autumn now. Let's say very good morning to Isabel Oakshaw. Isabel, how are you? 
morning. I'm very well, thank you, though I am really exercised by the sudden departure of Ben Wallace, who was an excellent defence secretary. Mm. Uh, and we really needed that in these times when we're uh, basically looking at war in Europe. And the Prime Minister's decision to replace him with Grant Shapps, I think, is quite extraordinary. Not because Grant Shapps isn't actually, um, by some measures anyway, a pretty effective minister. He's very energetic, mm. which is more than can be said for a lot of cabinet ministers. He's very good communicator and he is able to get things done. And he did stand up as Transport Secretary uh, for a long time to the dreadful unions. Uh, but the problem is that he has no background whatsoever in defence. And as someone who's written a book on the state of the armed forces, from a base of zero knowledge, mm. I knew nothing about the armed forces, didn't know one end of a ship from the other. Um, I can say that it is an extraordinarily challenging uh, subject to get your head around. It takes months to understand, even to develop a, a, a fundamental understanding of the armed forces. They are um, absolutely riddled with acronyms. You know, they can't help themselves. It's like a foreign language. He's going to need to go around with a kind of little dictionary um, explaining what some of the terminology is. I, I can't see him being able to wrap his head around any of this for probably six months. Uh, and the Tories likely only have a year left in office. Yeah. There is a war raging. It just seems inexplicable to me. It really does seem weird because what you can see with Grant Shapps is the old uh, Margaret Thatcher style picture of him sitting in a tank with his head poking out the top with a helmet on. Because you probably remember that famous picture of um, uh, of Rishi Sunak and I think it was Zelensky he was with, both getting onto a, a, heli a, a, a military helicopter with their kind of, you know, top, ma uh, top uh, gun gear on. And that's what it's all about. It's all about photo shoots. Yeah, I mean, and Liz, there's a photo of Liz Truss doing something similar, trying to reprise a kind of Thatcher stance. They all do it. It's frankly embarrassing if yeah. they don't have any background in defence. I mean, Ben Wallace is a military man, so he knew what he was talking about. Now, it's not unusual to appoint people with no background in defence mm. to the job. It's happened before. But I think what's different here is the time frame that it is only a year at the most till the next election and the fact that we've got a war raging with Russia. So I just find it frankly inexcusable that this decision has been made when there are several people that Rishi Sunak could have chosen who could have gone straight in, rolled up their sleeves and known what they were talking about. Exactly right. But it then says more about the Prime Minister, does it not, than it actually does about Grant Shapps? Because Grant Shapps will obviously do whatever job he's given. He'll quite happily do his master's bidding and all of that. But this tells you, does it not, that Rishi Sunak simply wants somebody in that role and in every role who just does what they're told. So Rishi Sunak is beginning to remind me ever more of one David Cameron. Yes. You know, a guy that essentially sees the role of prime minister as a sort of manager, a chief executive, mm. um, someone who is there to neutralise problems rather than to actually do something creative to solve the problems. You know, David Cameron famously um, said that he wanted to neutralise the, the NHS for the Conservatives. They had a fantastic opportunity 
to do so much more than so-called neutralize it so it's not a political problem for them and look how that worked out they could actually over the last 12 years have reformed it um, but that isn't how David Cameron saw his job and nor does it seem to be how this Prime Minister sees his job. Exactly right. And his first act, of course, is to pledge more money from our Treasury to Ukraine, which is now becoming, I think, more and more of a controversial kind of issue because more and more people that I speak to are a bit fed up with giving loads of money to Ukraine. And as much as, obviously, people would like to see uh, the war end, they don't want to see endless amounts of billions of pounds leaving this country and going there. And this is always the difficulty, isn't it? I think there's still publicly, if you polled this, you'd probably still find a really significant majority in favour of continuing to do, quote, whatever it takes mm. uh, to shore up the operation to get Russia out of Ukraine's sovereign territory. Uh, but it's always down to how you ask this question, isn't it? You know, if people were asked, you know, would you choose to send more weapons to Ukraine or build X number of new homes in your community, or you know, an extra hospital wing, or actually make your existing hospital fit for purpose, then I think the answers you'd find would be rather different. You know, people tend to have a slightly kind of vague idea of taxpayers' money uh, until it's put into tangibles. Um, and ultimately support will wane. And I think people are haunted by Afghanistan. Mm. And what happened after 20 years of blood and treasure? Yeah. And we've left the place, you know, arguably in some areas in a much worse position than mm. it was 10 years ago. And we're also reaping um, the whirlwind of that in terms of the numbers of refugees coming to live in this country or to try and get to this country. Um, many of them still strapped in Afghanistan who were supposedly going to be rescued by uh, our government. Yeah, some people will be mindful of that. Will there be more refugees? Everybody's been incredibly welcoming and supportive of refugees from Ukraine, although it does seem a bit ridiculous that there are certain um, refugees from Ukraine who now go back to Ukraine on holiday. I right. mean, I know this anecdotally from people who are still housing Ukrainians and right. they kind of disappear for a few weeks catching up with friends and family in Ukraine. I mean, that can't be right. Mm. Either you're here seeking refuge and your country is too difficult to live in or it's not. Yeah, you would think so. And also just on the military front, before we move off that, I see in the Telegraph they're saying there's a whole bunch of new United States fighter jets capable of carrying nuclear weapons uh, going to be stationed in the UK um, as soon as this year, which is a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Um, well, we've always had that very good alliance with the Americans on anything military, and we allow them to use some of our overseas territories for bases. I'm not across the detail of that particular story, mm. but what I do think is interesting is the kind of um, noises that are coming out of some um, very influential commentators in America suggesting that we are heading, that America is heading for war with Russia um, Tucker Carlson, formerly of Fox News, very, very uh, famous in America, huge following, is utterly convinced, he said on Twitter this week, that there will be a war within the next year between the US and Russia. Make of that what you will. Uh, but I think it's always interesting uh, when people like that who are very well connected 
feel very sure that something like that mm. is going to happen. You have to give it some thought, don't you, as to whether there might be some credibility. Well, this is why people like Peter Hitchens constantly call for some kind of peace deal, some kind of end to the war, albeit risking that you get called a sort of Putin sympathiser and a Putin appeaser, because in the end, it can only escalate into something like that, really. Or does it just drift on and on, a war of attrition, which is really what's been going on in Ukraine since 2014, you know, with the annexation of, of Crimea? Um, and I, I sort of think that is a more likely scenario, that it just sort of peters out a bit, but carry, you know, what's going to be left of Ukraine anyway? You know, what are they fighting over? You know, a bunch of raised cities mm. uh, on the Russian side. And on the Ukrainian side, they're fighting for their homeland. So they're not going to give up. Uh, and meanwhile, certainly President Putin's hardly going to admit defeat. He really isn't. Stay where you are, if you would, Isabel. We want to talk about the new uh, Secretary of State for Energy and Net Zero as well, somebody called Claire Coutinho, uh, who used to be a government advisor. We'll find out what she knows about Net Zero and what she's going to likely do uh, in that particular job. Uh, coming up, more from Isabel Oakeshott and myself right here on Talk TV. Talk Radio. The home of common sense. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Isabel Oakeshott and we've been speaking about the appointment of Grant Shapps to be the new uh, Secretary of State for Defence. It looks as though uh, somebody called Claire Coutinho, who I don't know too much about, she's been working as a Minister for Education apparently, uh, is likely to be confirmed as Energy Secretary, uh, sorry, Energy Security and Net Zero Secretary. Um, that's another one which is kind of like, well, so what? You know, what does she know? I've had a look at her Twitter account and she seems to be talking mostly about childminders and how important it is that they get paid more well in a sense i hope she doesn't know anything because then hopefully <laughs> she won't be able to do too much harm um claire coutinho the main thing to know about her is that she is exceptionally close to rishi sunak and um, was very much part of his close team um during covid times and this will be um, an appointment, a very personal appointment of a close ally. She's pretty young, um, former special advisor, I think, to Rishi Sunak. Uh, very clever, um, but, you know, you and I probably say share the same views of net zero yes. ministers. Um, I don't want any net zero ministers. I think they'll achieve net zero nothing, really. Yes, um, I know. Net Quite simply. It is just dreadful, isn't it? This kind of race to something that nobody can actually identify. It's almost like they're running around looking for the emperor's new clothes and not finding them. We go, but we must keep looking. We must head there. We must get there. We must be able to tell people we've done it. It's almost like every other government announcement now, like the one yesterday about, you know, forcing um, you know, suspects or, or convicted criminals to come and face the music. You know, judges have already got that right. Judges have already got the ability to order that to happen. So the fact that they're now actually saying there's a new law in place to do it, to make it happen, will change absolutely nothing. Well, and similarly with the all this new supposed crackdown on jagged machetes and so-called zombie knives, you know, successive home secretaries have announced these things. Nothing ever changes. Uh, we were talking about this on the talk last mm. night, the, um, the question of judges and the power to force defendants or um, those convicted of crimes to come up and hear and face their victims come up from the police cells. I think it's a surprise to many people that they were ever allowed just to sit in their cells and let justice happen while they sit downstairs and read a book or eat Haribo or whatever it is they do in their cells. Um, the problem here is that unless the courts are encouraged 
or even ordered to literally drag these people up from the cells physically. Yeah. They're simply not going to do it, are they? You know, just because they're being told, oh, you'll get an extra year on your sentence if you don't come up and show your face yeah. in the dock. Well, if these people are already facing 20 years in jail, you know, an extra year probably doesn't mean anything to them at that point. I think that they should be physically dragged up there. After all, on every in any town centre on a Friday night or a Saturday night, the police do physically bundle people yeah. away from streets and into police cars. So why can't we physically bundle people up from the cells and into the docks and let's make a spectacle of it? I said to Kevin O'Sullivan this morning, and I, and I meant it quite convincingly, that the lawyers in this country seem to have taken over every single aspect of everything that we do. There's always a lawyer that will pop up and tell uh, the convicted criminal, oh, we don't have to do that. Uh, just resist and just tell them you're not doing it. It's against your human rights. And then suddenly all bets are off. It's the lawyers who are ruining the migrants' situation. It's the lawyers who are, who are ruining the justice system in this country. And it's probably lawyers that are ruining what the police do. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think that there is, you know, a big new campaign to be done against the lawyers. Mm. And they are an absolutely insidious profession, uh, charging us all for basic tasks, vast amounts of money, whilst upending um, the fundamentals of this country. Um, we saw it during Brexit. We had, uh, you know, our learned friends doing their very best to aid and abet the thwarting of Brexit, a process that ultimately they failed in, at least technically, uh, but continues apace. And, you know, each and every day their presence becomes more malignant and, and more American style, really. You know, not just the fear of not just what lawyers do, but the fear of what they might do mm. is distorting the way the country is run. I think that's absolutely right. And one story I did want to run past you is on the front page of The Times today. Most people die. More than half of all people who died in England last year were on an NHS waiting list. And I know that you write about the NHS quite a bit. You've written about it recently. You've had dealings with the NHS for, for, for some time over recent years. Um, this is a shocking statistic, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. Um, I mean, in a sense, waiting for people to die or their problems to self-resolve has always been a method of reducing or managing waiting lists. Mm. And, you know, there is a, a small bit of justification in the category of waiting for problems to resolve because the, the human body is a remarkable thing and sometimes it does heal itself in the long period between uh, being told you need to see a specialist and any hope of actually seeing someone. But of course that shouldn't be the way we deal with patients. Um, the other thing in, in defense of, of this situation, if there is any defense to be had, is that many of those people who died on NHS waiting lists will already be extremely elderly. So in their 80s, for example, and I have a very elderly mm. relative currently receiving, I have to say, very good treatment uh, in hospital. And it is astonishing what the NHS will continue to throw at people who are very, very frail and have multiple issues, you know, in a sense, no, no money is no object. You know, they're still offered endless scans, mm. operations and procedures. So it doesn't surprise me um, that the brilliant way in which we don't give up on very elderly and frail people, we continue trying to make them better, means that at any one time, perhaps even most of them are on a waiting mm. list 
something. For something, really, yeah, and that's going to be for a long time. We can. It's okay that many other people are dying unnecessarily while waiting ludicrous lengths yes. of time. And I think, and I think that's the story, really. But we'll come back to that in a sec. We can now confirm, so we can say actually, Isabel, that your wish is Rishi Sunak's command because he has made Claire Coutinho uh, Secretary of State for Energy Security and Net Zero. Um, we await her first pronouncement because Grant Shapps's first one was that he was going to give all money to Ukraine. So we'll see what she's got to say for herself. Uh, meanwhile, Damien Hines has also been seen walking in to, to Downing Street. I have to say, I can just give a huge sigh and a kind of shrug about all of this, to be honest. Oh, oh, me too. Um, I mean, is this now a proper beginnings of a proper full scale reshuffle? Because if so, that would make sense in the run up to party conference and the start of the new political season. Because if not, if he still plans to do any kind of reshuffle before the next election, the whole of party conference is going to be overshadowed. Mm. People wondering if they're going to be in the job for more than the next couple of weeks. You've just reminded me that party conference season is practically I'm upon sorry. us. You've made I me. Know. You've, that, sorry. It's made me even more depressed, I'm afraid. But this Isabel, great to see you. you Thank don't you very have much. To go to it. I probably will be. Oh God, yeah. I once got. I once I almost had to go to a Labour Party conference, but luckily I was dashed at the last minute, so I didn't have to do it. Isabel, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Talk TV's international editor there on the news that's breaking as we speak about Rishi Sunak's cabinet reshuffle. We've got um, a new Secretary of State for Energy Security and Net Zero. Claire Coutinho has just been named uh, doing that job. That was, of course, Grant Shapps' job. He's just been named as the new Secretary of State for Defence. We can uh, now go down live uh, to Westminster to uh, Peter Cardwell on College Green, uh, who's got the latest for us. Peter. Hi, Mike. Yes, Claire Cattino has only been an MP since 2019, but she's a big loyalist to Rishi Sunak. She was a special advisor when he was in the Treasury, his first job in the Treasury, actually, as Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Then she became an MP, as I say, in 2019. She's only been a minister for less than a year, actually, as Children's Minister on the lowest rank of the ministerial ladder. But she is, and she's in a rock-solid constituency in uh, East Surrey as well. East Sussex, I should say. So she is someone who is a big loyalist, as is Grant champs and I think that's basically the end of the reshuffle. We saw Damien Hines going into Downing Street. I mean he is not going to be the new children's minister. That's a very low ranking uh, job for someone who's been a cabinet minister in a number of uh, roles so I think that's, he's probably just gone into Downing Street for another meeting although we'll see um, but certainly uh, that's basically it in terms of the uh, cabinet reshuffle. Two, uh, one I should say new cabinet minister and two new faces in different departments of course. Uh, Grant Shapps went across the road just about 100 yards or so across the road from Downing Street to the Ministry of Defence. He has paid tribute not just to his predecessor Ben Wallace but also to the brave men and women who are uh, in the British Army both here in the UK and around the world and uh, Claire Coutinho is making her way now to the Department of Energy and uh, Energy Security and Net Zero. Grant Shapps uh, famously said when he was in that role that it was a sort of in that order, energy security first, then net zero. But I'd be astonished if Claire Coutinho, who is a big loyalist of Rishi Sunak, demurs from any of the policies on net zero. It's been the policy of the government since Theresa May. It's the policy of the three main parties, but obviously something a lot of talk TV viewers and listeners aren't happy with. So um, I'd be very surprised if there's any change in government policy. I'm also expecting a big, uh, a much bigger reshuffle probably before Christmas. But this side of the political party conferences, both Conservatives in Manchester and Labour in Liverpool, and 
and uh, the King's speech in November. I don't think we're going to see any more major moves in government. No, indeed. Uh, David Johnson, we're told, has been appointed uh, to replace Claire Coutinho at the Department for Education uh, as Parliamentary Undersecretary of State. So who, who has? Sorry, David, Mike, I just messed that. David Johnson. Not sure who that is, to be honest. Uh, never heard of him. <laughs> well, if you've never heard of him, we've got no chance. Thank you very much indeed. We'll come back to you later. Peter Cardwell. Uh, Johnson apparently was first elected in December 2019. Represents Wantage. I think that's the old um, uh, seat for my Lord Vasey, uh, a man seen in these parts from time to time on Talk TV uh, in the evening. Uh, likes to be on Jeremy Carl's show and has been on the Piers Morgan show a couple of times as well. Uh, he, I remember he was from Wantage because we once had a bit of a set too uh, when he claimed that I'd never spoken to anybody from his constituency which was quite funny. Uh, anyway, there we are. So, a bit of a mini reshuffle. We've got much more to talk about. Coming up, we're going to speak to Lord Bethel because this NHS story about people dying on waiting lists is a big one. Uh, and we're going to talk about it and we're going to take your calls as well. 0344 499 1000. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up later on in the show, Rod Little is going to be here. We're also going to talk to Di Davis, the former head of rural protection and former chief superintendent uh, of the Metropolitan Police because he knows a thing or two about the royal family. He also knows a thing or two about uh, the military because this morning both of those uh, have collided together uh, in the Sun newspaper where Prince Harry is being accused by military campaigners and charity campaigners of massively getting it wrong and not crediting Help for Heroes and not crediting uh, the Sun newspaper in particular, for raising an absolute fortune, hundreds of millions of pounds for veterans, uh, even before he went to Afghanistan. He was busy bleating on this Invictus documentary uh, that he didn't receive any help and that the military wasn't helped by, by anyone at all. And it was all about him being left out in the cold. Well, it turns out that once again, I'm afraid, uh, Harry has got it completely and utterly round his ears uh, and he doesn't seem to know a fact from fiction. But that will come as no surprise to anyone. We'll talk about that in a little while. But now we need to talk about the NHS because the story on the front page of the Times today has revealed something that Isabel Oakeshott said you shouldn't be surprised about. But it is this, that more than half of all people who died in England last year were on an NHS waiting list. The toll uh, is 340,000, up from 240,000 five years before. So an extra 100,000 people, uh, almost 40%, you might say, uh, of people have died because they've been waiting so long uh, for treatment on the NHS. And you can only conclude that one of the problems is not so much that the waiting lists are there at all, but it's that people are on them for such long periods of time. Now, no doubt there will be people, and I don't know whether Lord Bethel will be one of them, he's a former Conservative health minister, who will say, oh yes, but people are waiting less time now than they were. What we know is that there's more people than ever uh, on them. And we've got probably as many as 17 million people actually waiting for some kind of procedure to be done because the first figure of 7.6 million uh, went up just recently for people waiting for their first kind of procedure. But there's another 10 million waiting for a second one. Let's find out uh, what Lord Bethel makes of it all. Uh, Lord Bethel, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, when I put this to Isabel Oakeshott, she said, well, it, it's, it's sort of is and it isn't surprising because you would expect some people on an NHS waiting list um, to die before they were able to get their treatment. And I, I accept that. But nevertheless, the fact that it's gone up by so many people would suggest to me that many more people are waiting longer than they've ever waited. Yes, well, it's about it's right. Obviously, people on waiting lists are more likely to die, I'm afraid. And these are extrapolated figures. They're not the complete picture yet. But you're right. Listen, we've got far too many people on the waiting lists at the moment. And we learnt 25 years ago 
that uh, one of the best ways of improving the health of the nation, of, of ensuring that the procedures uh, we perform to treat those who are ill, uh, is to reduce waiting time so you catch the disease earlier right. and people's bodies are in better shape to, to fight to fight back. So, yes, these are very un unexpected but very daunting figures. They really are. Because, as you say, uh, many people who are on these waiting lists perhaps have only gone on them recently because they have, to, have had to wait for a couple of years before they could even be seen by a consultant um, who would then put them on a waiting list. So, so that sort of drag, if you like, from, from lockdown and from COVID is still there, isn't it? Well, a lot of the people on waiting lists are waiting for a diagnostic itself. They're not all waiting for a procedure. And one of the ways of getting the waiting list down uh, is to invest in diagnostics. And one of my worries is that we're, we're not doing uh, enough to do that. Um, but there is uh, undoubtedly a huge impact on the nation's health from this. And we're seeing that in the workforce absences at the moment. We've lost half a million workers. And one of the biggest reasons for that, I suspect, is the large number of people who are either waiting or feeling more ill than they need to be because they are waiting for uh, a test or, or a diagnostic or, yeah. or a procedure. And how would be that best speeded up? Is it, is it going to see um, a doctor in the first instance, a GP, who then refers them somewhere else? Well, Mike, it's really tough because we've got this trifecta of uh, not enough people, not enough kit, not enough medicine. You know, it's, it's, we're being hit from uh, all directions. We, there is no invisible army. There's no secret battalion of doctors uh, and MRI scanners. So the question is, how do we use the wider NHS uh, team more effectively. And we are doing a lot with community diagnostic hubs, with bringing pharmacists into play uh, by using AI to broaden the range of options for people to try and get uh, answers to whether they are or not uh, sick and to get them on the right pathway as soon as possible. Those innovations should be happening much more quickly. And one of the effects of the doctor's strikes and of the waiting list themselves has been to hold up the rate of innovation. Yes. Uh, and I would really urge the government and, and Steve Barclay to, to do whatever they can to try and keep up the pace of, of change, because there's much that new technologies and, and procedures can do to, to in, increase productivity. Yeah. One of the things that I'm told is a massive problem um, is part time working in the NHS, because there's actually more doctors physically on the payroll than there were 10 years ago. Um, but many more of them are only doing, say, three days a week. And there are many different reasons for that. Some of them are doing a couple of days private. Some of them are only doing three days because it, it suits them better. Others are doing it because there's no point in topping up their pensions anymore because it doesn't actually work for them. And they don't make any more money. But I'm told that the sort of part-time working is, is really an issue because if you could get those people who are on three-day weeks to do five, you'd have a massive increase in the numbers of people that could be seen. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's one of the ironies is that we're doing a lot to train uh, medical professionals, but a lot of them don't take up the jobs that they are they have been trained for. And if they do take them up, they take them, as you say, on a part-time basis. And that's particularly true in GPs. On the other hand, we have this very high burnout rate, particularly when people are in their to mid and, and higher level of their career, people in their 40s and 50s, particularly the senior nurses and the senior doctors are just dropping out of work altogether. Mm. So there's something wrong with the work environment. It's not unique to the NHS, but it is particularly acute in the NHS that we've got a, a, a flight from the workplace that is really hitting the productivity uh, of the whole system. 
particularly of the key workers who have the experience uh, and the gravitas to lead and provide expertise. Yes. And again, I mean, the answer presumably for that problem is not necessarily to pay them more money. The nurses have accepted a pay deal. Uh, the junior doctors still haven't. And the consultants, nobody really knows what they want because, you know, they've already got so much money coming in already. Nobody can quite understand why the hell they're on strike. I think it's a mixture of three things. One is management culture. Uh, the NHS isn't the only place to be struggling with a sort of toxic, hierarchical um, uh, culture, but it is particularly bad when you listen to the nurses and you speak to um, the workforce about how they find the satisfaction of their work. They typically say that they love the work itself, they just can't stand the workplace. And we need to be doing something uh, about that. Um, secondly, uh, there is something going on in workplaces uh, around the world uh, and in Britain that people just don't like the way that they used to work. And pay has gone sideways. I think, I, I think that it, you're absolutely right. The nurses have accepted the pay. Uh, I don't see a huge travesty. But right across Britain, um, we've had stagnant wages for nearly 12 years. That does have an impact on people's sense of self-worth uh, and their and their psychological contentment with work. And, and that is one of the features of a stagnant economy. People don't go into work with the same spring in their step as they do when they're getting regular pay rises. Well, you might argue and, uh, that that's because they're getting taxed more as well. Well, that's right. I mean, it's not only in the public sector, it's also in the private sector. Mm. You're seeing people uh, frustrated and, you know, they're talking about having sort of mental health condition. I, I, these mental health conditions are particularly associated with uh, stagnant economies. And that, that's, that's uh, something that we have to wrestle with more broadly than just the NHS. Yeah, because actually wages in the past year have risen because an awful lot of public sector workers have been managing to get a pay rise of one kind or another. Private sector pay is up as well, but it's not up as much as inflation. So people feel as though, well, I've had a pay rise, but it hasn't actually made any difference. Well, I think it depends on who you are. If freelancers obviously have difference to people with big pensions, like many, many in the NHS. Some people benefited from furlough during COVID and uh, have actually got money on their, on their deposit accounts. Others got very hit, hit really hard, particularly if they uh, didn't get provided for uh, by, the by the government measures in the same way. So I think it depends who you are. You know, if you're a delivery driver over the last three years, you know, that you were, you've had a tough time with the cost of living expenses going up. But you are right that many within the NHS have had pay rises, they do have generous pensions, they do have a lot of job security. The problems we have with retention are not just about remuneration. They are about culture, job satisfaction, uh, and, and the sense of mission around the NHS. And, and that's learned, what I think a lot of people are struggling we've, with. We've also learned a lot, I think, and without wishing to over-egg the pudding, I mean, we have learned quite a lot about the culture inside some hospitals uh, because of the Lucy Letby case. I mean, I've had consultants calling me to say that there's an awfully toxic atmosphere in an awful lot of hospitals because of the way the management uh, works. And I've always said that, you know, the problems in the NHS, I think, are down to the management of the NHS to a large extent. It's a mixed bag. Some hospitals are incredibly well managed. Others are, are terrible. Uh, I think maternity wards have had a long-standing uh, issue, for, which has been very well chronicled. We had it in Northwick Park, in uh, East Kent, uh, and in other hospitals. Um, Donna Okendun wrote a very powerful report on this, about this strange um, toxic friction between the consultants uh, and uh, the midwives, yeah. many of whom feel very strongly about natural birth we've got to somehow have some kind of peace and reconciliation uh, between those two parties because the Lucy Letby case shows that if they are not agreeing with each other, if they mm. don't trust each other, 
then psychopaths like Lucy Letby can be, can slip through and and do their work. Yes, absolutely right. Uh, Lord Bethel, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. The former Conservative Health Minister, of course, on the news that hospital waiting list deaths have doubled in five years. 340,000 people in England died awaiting treatment in 2022. These are people who have been on a waiting list for a long time. You will know, uh, if you know anyone who is trying to get anything done on the NHS, how awful the system actually is. I'd welcome any stories that you've got for us that you can talk to us about. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots to do. We've got plenty of time to do it in, of course, because coming up uh, in this hour, we're going to be discussing uh, Prince Harry once again, getting himself muddled up about the past, getting himself all confused about what it was that actually did happen in his life, as opposed to what he thinks happened in his life after he saw a therapist about it and unburdened himself and suddenly discovered that nobody was ever helping him. It turns out that at least one of the claims that he made uh, in this Invictus documentary that came out yesterday on Netflix uh, is completely and utterly wrong. He talks about how, oh, I never got any help. Nobody wanted to talk to me. I didn't really know what to do. And then it turns out he gave another interview uh, in 2017 uh, in which he talked about how great Prince William, his brother had been, uh, who had actually advised him to get therapy and who had helped him through many of the traumas that he felt uh, he was suffering from. Uh, he also talked about how he never really got over the death of his mother, Princess Diana, uh, the former Princess of Wales, who died, of course, 26 years ago today. We're going to talk to Di Davis, former head of the Royal Protection Squad and a former chief superintendent of the Metropolitan Police. The Sun this morning has uh, sort of answered back to many of the claims that Harry has made uh, and said that actually we did care. Harry. Um, Prince claimed that the media ignored wounded British soldiers. Uh, the Sun have made it very clear that actually that's not true. And severely wounded campaigner Ben Parkinson uh, is in the paper this morning saying, I have no idea what Harry is talking about. Uh, the Sun and the media in general have been amazing to me and also given incredible support to my family and also Help for Heroes raised £370 million and they call it Harry's £370 million gaffe. I'm like, oh, we've sort of come to be used to now, um, Harry giving a rather interesting uh, and, shall we, shall we say, slightly invented version of the truth. After all, uh, there's been plenty of gaffes over the years, all the way back to that Oprah Winfrey interview uh, that he did before he put his own book out, which also contained loads of things which nobody thinks actually happened. So let's talk to Di Davis and see what he makes of it all. Di, very good uh, morning to you. Good morning to you, sir. Uh, and once again, I'm sorry to say that we talked about this yesterday and, and myself and Kevin O'Sullivan both said, look, you know, the Invictus Games is, is a fine sort of event. It's something that I think we should probably, um, you know, congratulate Harry for coming up with. And, and it's obviously helpful to an awful lot of people. But he does have this tendency to kind of give his own truth about things which, which he thinks happened, but which turn out not to have happened. And he seems to be a guy who continually says things like nobody cared about me nobody did anything for me nobody was there to help me and all mostly most most of that isn't true well, you're absolutely right as always uh, what you and your colleagues said this morning uh, is absolutely right i i'm mystified why a man of his background and alleged intelligence keeps making these gaffes gaffes they are and unfortunately if you tell untruths you will be found out and the papers this morning are full of people alleging he is telling his version of the truth, which most people don't agree with. It's extremely sad, but when I look at him, it's he's got what I call the me-me syndrome. It's all about often him instead of the 
hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women who have suffered far more than he, he ever has, in my opinion. So it's very sad that we're, yet again we're having the publicity, and undoubtedly, as you say, the Invictus Games, which he set up as a copy of an American organization, all credit to him. Um, and again, why does he continually attack the British press? As you rightly say, mm. they raised over £320 million to servicemen. And I haven't found anybody who's critical in this instance of the British media. On the contrary. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of reasons to have a go at the British media, and he does it all the time. But again, in this case, he was wrong. He's complained, for example, that the British press ruined his deployment to Afghanistan. But the actual reality was that the UK media knew he was in Afghanistan, but didn't publish that fact and didn't publish anything about it while he was there. Uh, it was kept a secret by all papers in this country and all news organisations, but his cover was blown by the Drudge Report, which is a US-based uh, internet site uh, with a world exclusive about Harry the Hero, and then by Australian women's magazine New Idea. Um, he tells the Netflix documentary how angry he was that his cover was basically blown and his deployment was revealed. But it wasn't revealed by a British newspaper or by any British media organisation. Well, yet again, you're absolutely right in your reporting. And it is right. He, he surely, somebody, what kind of advice does he get? Does he go to the same school of advice as Uncle Andrew? Yeah. Because he likewise was given poor advice. And again, whoever's advising Harry, whether it's his wife or anyone else, it's very poor advice and he does no credit to himself. You know, he can claim some credit for setting up this Invictus and supporting injured uh, men and women. That everybody agrees with. What nobody, and I was looking quickly at, at, at the, the voting, you know, six, seven thousand vis-a-vis -vis about 20 say he's a complete idiot huh. and he's behaving like a prat yet again. And yes. it's very sad. Um, for the royal family, and again, he's attacking his own brother, who allegedly, and we were there, gave good advice. He's also uh, dashing his friends, who at that time have given him good advice. He looks to me as still uh, somebody who's suffering with mental illness. Yeah. And that would explain why, in one sense, uh, he's coming out with this load of rubbish, frankly. Well, and I'm sure it was very traumatic to lose his mother at such a young age, but we can't forget that, that his brother was also in the same situation. He was maybe a little bit older, but, but nevertheless, you know, it was a terribly traumatic event when Princess Diana died uh, 26 years ago today. And we all probably remember it. I'm sure, I don't know if you were still working in those days um, and what you were doing, but, we're, you know, we all remember it uh, um, in, in an incredibly kind of visceral way, I think, because it affected an awful lot of people in Britain at the time. Well, it did. And yes, I was in charge of actually royalty protection at the time. And I got the phone call um, shortly after about 12.30 a.m. Uh, from uh, my duty officer. And, and then events took, took place and, and we were extremely busy, as you can imagine. And my then deputy uh, flew that morning to Paris to coordinate uh, the event. So mm. it was a huge affair. And yes, I certainly remember it. Didn't get much sleep that week. No. But... Um, you know, going back to it, yes, it's tragic, but men and women have suffered far more. Uh, and I'm not deriding mental illness. It is a huge issue if you've got it. But, you know, there are men and women with no arms, no legs. And I don't hear them whinging to the same extent. So my heart goes out to them. I do anything to support them, as most of us would. Unfortunately, this young, well, he's not young anymore. This man has had such a privileged upgrade. And, and, and 
thousands of people across the world lose their parents and it's very sad and it's traumatic of yeah. course it is um, i'm an orphan myself you wouldn't be surprised to know at my age no seriously you know people do suffer but they don't go on about it and don't have the platform as he continuously does to open his his big yeah. mouth unfortunately well that's the problem it you be know, about yes yeah, it, it should be about those men and women in the services and, and great publicity but let's talk about them not prince harry yes. i always say i think that's right because he does always manage to put himself kind of front and center of the story um and it's almost as though if somebody's convinced him that something happened he believes that it did happen you know he even went as far as to suggest um incredibly i thought when he was giving those interviews uh, to netflix and the previous series that we've seen that you know he sort of left britain and uh, because he almost feared for his own life in the way that his and he thought he might end up the same way as his mother, almost sort of suggesting that he believed the conspiracy theory that she was murdered by somebody. Well, yes, indeed, he's raised that as conspiracy. And one of the things I, I, I'm off tomorrow to lecture on a cruise ship on the history of attacks on the British family, uh, royal family over the centuries. Yeah. You know, this is an issue. Uh, that he continually raises, and I can assure you, I've spent years investigating myself, uh, along with Operation Paget, into the events of Paris, yeah. and I'm a hundred percent, thousand percent convinced that it was a tragic accident, yeah. as are more, most rational people. And I spend an hour giving a lecture on the true facts, what really happened, as against the nonsense that is talked about by a, a still. Uh, amazingly, what you think are sensible people. And if I had a pound for every time and say, well, you would say that. Well, anybody, as your listeners know, on any program, I tell it as I believe it. And boy, do I believe this was an accident. So for him to think this was a conspiracy, having been assured by Lord Stevens, mm. who carried out the Scotland Yard inquiry, the second of three inquiries, and then the verdict of the jury at the inquest, for him to continually go on shows to me there is a crack in his mental illness and he has and he is suffering from mental illness and he looks to me as somebody who has dealt a lot with mentally ill people over the years he looks to me still mentally ill which is very sad yes he hasn't quite come to terms with it all because you know what we know about the paparazzi who were chasing the car is that they were all from foreign organizations foreign media organizations we also know that the car uh, had been chopped up and was re-put back together so it wasn't really safe if it was ever involved in a crash we know that Henri paul um, had taken some some uh, some certainly some medication if he hadn't also had a drink and we also know that the fact that she had left her royal protection squad behind in order to be protected by um, Mohammed al-Fayed uh, was a massive uh, error in, on her part. Well, it's a huge, huge error on her part. And if royalty protection had been protecting her at that time, no way would they have allowed anyone to drive at those speeds. And let's face it, it was speed combined with alcohol. And as you say, some aspects of drugs that Henri Paul had been taken. But you know, the press don't kill you. There may be a pain sometimes, but they don't kill you. And, and unfortunately, what killed Princess Diana was a drunken driver, and I'm a thousand percent convinced of that, uh, having spent years and years looking into it myself on top of the uh, other facets that have gone on over the years. But still you get people, and I'm sure people listening today will say, well, he would say that. Well, anyone who knows me says, no, mm -hmm. I wouldn't. And I humbly believe and, and positively believe as an investigator that that is the true story. She was murdered, yes. not by... Uh, a, a not by conspiracy, but by a drunken driver. Right. And I mean, Lord Spencer, you know, uh, her brother didn't help matters when he more or less accused the British press of sort of chasing her to her death. And I remember working at Daily Express at the time and people would ring up the newspaper office and basically accuse us of killing her. 
You know, it was unbelievable. Well, it was an absolute nonsense. And as you know, some members of the press actually went along with Mr. Fayed's version of once that it was murder. Well, they equally should hang their heads in shame because every facet of evidence points against that, as I keep saying. Mm. But no, you're quite right. But again, uh, Princess Diana herself had her contacts in the media and she encouraged some of the paparazzi in the south of France and actually posed for them. So again, there's a lot of nonsense talked about by people who are simply not aware of the full circumstances. It's a very interesting saga that continues to interest people and people like me still uh, talk about it by giving lectures as to the Mm. true story. Well, it is one of those fascinating stories and I think people will always want to hear from people like yourself, Di, because you knew so much about what actually happened at the time and that's, you know, very valuable in this day of kind of, uh, day and age of, of, you know, counterpoints and, you know, myths and and even the likes of Prince Harry not really remembering exactly what happened. Appreciate your time. Di Davis, thank you very much indeed, former head of Royal Protection, who was indeed a head of Royal Protection when uh, Princess Diana died, when the news broke from Paris in the middle of the night. Uh, I certainly remember where I was and I also remember working that week in an incredibly kind of of 24-7 round-the-clock way uh, because you literally could not make enough newspapers to sell. People were buying them up by the dozen. It was an extraordinary time. Um, And obviously Harry has now put himself back into the public eye um, by saying a load of things which have once again got him into quite a bit of trouble. A piece here saying after a period of relative calm, Prince Harry has reopened loads of old wounds with fresh swipes at the royal family, claiming that no one helped him as his life unravelled after returning from Afghanistan. And it simply isn't true. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Steve says Harry probably can't remember the truth because of all the cocaine, weed and alcohol swimming in his system. Well, this is the trouble. He has given several interviews in the past in which he has basically said exactly that. Oh, uh, I was taking so many drugs, I didn't really know uh, what was going on. Uh, and then this one, Mike, Harry copied the Invictus games off the Americans' Warriors games. Well, maybe so. Um, Adrian Daventry, Mike, the problem with Prince Harry is that he's not very intelligent. He keeps repeating that he is hard done by and that he was affected by the death of his mother. Does he keep saying it because he's forgotten he's already said it over and over again. Just say no to drugs. Uh, and just before uh, we speak to Ben Pyle about uh, whatever it is that is, is going to happen with this latest ULEZ report and, of course, the new Net Zero uh, Secretary of State, let's talk about that. Mike, how can Claire Coutinho, ex-Special Advisor, be confirmed as Energy Security and Net Zero Secretary? She's Net Zero experience of working in the real world and what we need to get out, uh, energy infrastructure sorted. I say it's bad news, says John in Burnham-on-Sea. Well, a bit like Isabel Oakeshott, uh, I kind of think, well, maybe if she doesn't know much about net zero, she won't do much about net zero, which might be good. But let's talk to Ben Powell, climate researcher and writer, of course. A story on the front page of the Telegraph today suggests that not only um, did the office of the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's, uh, give 800,000 quid to Imperial College to compile a series of reports about climate change and about uh, air pollution in London. It now turns out that a scientist who independently peer-reviewed a paper that they produced uh, was actually a member of the same group that received the funding, which doesn't sound particularly ethical, apart from anything else. Ben, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Uh, yeah, very well indeed. Thanks for talking to us. I mean, I was shocked enough when it turned out that they'd given all this money to Imperial College to kind of stunt up uh, this report, which apparently said that there was 4,000 people dying every year and all of the other things that were twisted around to make the air pollution problem seem bigger than it really was. It now turns out uh, that Gary Fuller, senior lecturer at Imperial College, was the sole reviewer of the study and he was in the same group. 
yeah, it's a bit like checking your own homework, yeah. isn't it? Um, and if, if, exactly. If, you know, if, if you want if you want someone to check your numbers um, and and you've got a political agenda to to drive home, no pun intended, um, then then uh, a, a Guardian journalist um, and and someone who's written a book called The Invisible Killer. I mean, he's just a political activist, is a pretty safe pair of hands. Uh, as it happened, um, I, well, I, at the same time, um, I, I was trying to get hold of the data in this report that mm. Gary Fuller um, uh, allegedly peer-reviewed. I, I, I don't think he, he spent much time on it. Um, uh, and I FOI'd uh, the mayor's office for that data, and they refused to give it to me. And oh, that really? was back in February. Um, and so it's been going on for six months, and now we've um, I've taken it to the independent um, uh, commissioner, uh, Information Commissioner's Office, um, and they and they said a few weeks ago that that under a different rule, uh, not FOI, environmental rules, um, the mayor's office have got to give me that data, but they still haven't haven't mm. done so. So so it's, it seems like they can get scientists for hire to to rubber stamp this stuff. But if anyone from the public uh, wants to have a look and see what the numbers are and, and check the mayor's office work office's workings, mm. uh, they're not allowed to. And uh, we've also approached this, the, the imperial themselves, and we and we've, we've asked them what's going on and and how we may challenge this. And they've just well, they've just told us to go away as well. So what? there really is no, there's no political debate here, and there's no scientific debate. And we've also, of course, found Gary Fuller's uh, colleague um, has been reported also in the Telegraph um, as trying to shut down scientific debate. So, so there's something very fishy going yeah. on here, and I don't think it's called science. Well, that's exactly right because I see this now all the time in terms of what kind of government policy is led by, because what they've now... Somebody's obviously told them, here's a great idea, tell everybody that you've done a scientific study and that the scientific study has concluded that you have to do this, and then you go and do it. You know, it's like the way that they drive the whole net zero business. It's the way they drove um, the COVID numbers when we were uh, in the midst of a lockdown, and they would tell us all the time that the predictions were blah, and which were very frightening, and it turned out they were nowhere near that. And, of course, Sadiq Khan assumes that because we are critical of both of those modelling episodes by Imperial College and by SAGE, that we are somehow not only suspected of being, you know, climate deniers, we're also suspected of being COVID deniers, which couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we simply want to know why you're using what is massaged uh, figures and data to call it call it science. Yeah, I think there's a, a generalised misunderstanding of what science is. A lot of people seem to think that science just produces facts like a machine. Actually, the, the, the claims that the likes of the researchers of Imperial College are producing are, are very weak statistical studies that mm. look for perhaps correlation between something like air pollution exposure and how long you live. And the effects are I I extremely weak. Um, they, 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 have to, they have to do quite a lot of maths to, to, to sort of force these numbers out out of their investigations to give to politicians and it's very interesting that actually you've got a, a, organizations like the environmental research group at imperial and the grantham institute as well another billionaire funded uh, research organization um, at, at imperial um, and you get more consensus about that week's science than you probably would get in a in a physics laboratory, right. so the, these these kind of researchers, they're not actually doing um, uh, science. They're doing they're doing sort of statistic statistical uh, analyses for policy, which is which is not the way we typically expect science to 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 um, 
to be done. Right. We, we, we expect scientists to be politically neutral, to be, not be driven by ideology and not to have those kind of agendas. So I think we need we need to take uh, everyone needs to sort of uh, look at what their expectations of science are and whether these uh, scientific institutions are capable of producing them, uh, producing, uh, meeting those expectations. Because I think after COVID and this climate stuff and these net zero policies, we can see that, that there, there is no real basis um, for, for the for the confidence that we no. we've put in these institutions, and it's a very familiar pattern. I mean, a spokesman apparently for uh, the mayor's office told the Telegraph, Dr. Gary Fuller is a world leading academic looking at air pollution, who also serves as an expert advisor to the government. Any suggestion that Dr. Fuller is anything but an independent expert in his field is nonsense. Well, that may well be, but we're not suggesting that he's not an expert. We're suggesting that his data isn't necessarily what he's made it into. And we're suggesting that the science that he claims to be absolutely solid uh, perhaps is not as solid as he would like it to be. Yeah, it's, again, it's, it's hiding behind scientific authority and scientific institutions. Um, it, it doesn't, it, their, their, their statement of confidence in Gary Fuller counts for naught, you know. Um, it, what, what counts is whether that science can be scrutinised and whether those finding his findings can be replicated, um, and 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 that may only be possible if you have a consensus between an institution or in, in a scientific discipline um, uh, to, to to do that. But if you but if you're put, if they're putting walls up and if they uh, as the as the uh, mayor's office has been doing, calling people who criticise their policies and the scientific investigations Nazis, yeah. um, then then the researchers and ordinary people, perhaps with expertise, are going to be put off from from from. From taking part in that process, um, so so the, the mayor's office really is 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 trying to use that authority to to throw away to to, to, to sort of uh, bat away criticism, but it's 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 just not going to wash because um, it, it it's just uh, I mean it's just it's just weak science at the end of the day, and and it's going it, there's going to be more and more questions asked about it as more and more people suffer the consequences of this science abuse. Yes, um, people have you know people have their cars taken away and and, and so on and so forth. Well, it really is becoming much, much more draconian, isn't it? And you wouldn't expect something that this would be the end of it either. You know, despite the fact that they've denied they're looking into possibly charging drivers by the mile. Um, I'm sure that that will be the next thing they try and pull. Yeah, well, I, I, all of the all of the green policies that we have, and it's a salami slice. We've got to realise that there is a there is a, a, a trajectory to all this. It's a, it, I, I wouldn't call it a slippery slope. I'd call it a sheer drop. Right. And if we go back, if we look at the last 20 years, there's been salami slicing. Every 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 freedom has been eroded and every, every policy gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's totally changed the relationship between ordinary people and local government and national government. So now there's this antagonism. So you, you, you don't feel like the local authorities are there to make sure the, 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 the roads work or the roads are clear. Mm. And, and and uh, uh, you know, and it goes quite far back. I mean, twenty years ago, they were starting to to reorganise the way bins were collected, and then they they started turning themselves into the bin police. So that you know, and, and they reduced the level of service. So we only got one one collection every two weeks. Um, uh, uh, and and then they, and they would start mm. fining people. Yeah. So and so we've got to see this in the in the whole. All of these environmental policies are about changing the way we live without us having necessarily given our our consent right. to that that and make no mistake they want everyone out of their cars but they know they can only do it bit by bit by bit by mm. bit um and because people people still believe that they can vote for a party that's going to give them the freedoms that they want right. that's going to allow them to do what they need to do but the, the, this this is we 
if you look at the literature, the, 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 the reports that these lobbying organizations and those scientists themselves produce, they are conceiving of a world in which nobody is allowed to drive. Um, and, and we've got to take that seriously rather than just looking at the, the, the each individual salami yeah. slice policy. Yeah, absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Great to talk to you, Ben Powell. Thank you very much indeed. Climate researcher and writer uh, fighting the good fight as we are uh, against this ludicrous onslaught of anti-car policy, because that's entirely what it is. You know, there are people in London who don't have cars. There are people in London who think having clean air uh, is a great thing. Well, of course, nobody wants to have clean air uh, changed into not clean air. But the problem is, is that Sadiq Khan is not making the air any cleaner. He hasn't got any evidence that the air is cleaner because of you, Les. And he doesn't have any evidence that by charging people to drive, that that cleans the air. Because it doesn't, does it? It's as simple as that. Coming up, Peter Cardwell is going to join us with the lowdown on what went on uh, down in Downing Street today. We've got a couple of new ministers in tow. Uh, we'll find out what he knows about them. Uh, coming up next. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, the rain appears to have stopped. It seems I can now see uh, outside. It's not as misty as it once was because uh, it is, of course, still summer. It's not apparently, according to Peter Cardwell, doesn't become autumn until the 23rd of September. I'm very glad to say that I'm now joined by Jeremy Kyle, uh, who is in the house uh, because there's a huge documentary going out tonight that we want you all to watch. And it's called JK Investigates the Horizon Scandal. How have you been? I'm good, mate. Listen, good. Before, before we talk about the Horizon yes. scandal, what's going on with Peter Carboy's glasses? Well, listen, I mean, a lot of people have commented on that this morning. They've said, why is he wearing them? Is, yes. it, is it? Did he lose a bet? Um, yes. Or, you know, is they need to go. Some kind of prank. Yes, yeah, they need to played go. on him. I mean, big day reshuffle. Oh, I'm not sure they're actually his glasses. I think he borrowed them. From yeah, I think so. College green. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Listen, my friend, a big, a big uh, documentary tonight. You know, the JK investigates. Yes. Um, sort of. It's a great theory. show. Thank we you. Love um, it. And I have to tell you about the one tonight at seven o'clock. If, if, if you just watch one, watch this. I had absolutely no mm. idea. Have you heard about the Horizon Post Office scandal? This I mean, is this... the one where all the sub post office people were prosecuted right basically they, they their had, lives ruined yeah they had they had software computer software put in they would complain to their masters and say this isn't adding up mm. many of them were, were were subbing just to make sure they didn't get into trouble the right. post office were telling all of them you're the only one that's complaining in right. the end 2000 were prosecuted Unbelievable. some lost their livelihoods there's one particular woman i want you to play a clip janet skinner do you know these people were so desperate and so they had nowhere to turn mm. right Many were encouraged by their lawyers to admit this woman went to jail for nine months, right? Unbelievable. They're still waiting for compensation. Apparently and what, the, the post lawyers office, told them. love this, the post office can't afford to pay out. It'll be the British taxpayer. Brilliant. Um, so they were encouraged to admit things by their own lawyers, Absolutely. even though they weren't guilty Mate, of them. This is ja Just have a watch or a listen. Janet Skinner. This, mm. is, this is unbelievable. Here we go. The judge basically said, you've stolen from pensioners, you've stolen the Queen's money, and he gave me a nine-month custodial sentence. And to be fair, I thought, oh, he's going to suspend it. But then the gates locked, and I heard them lock, and that's when I just knew. Tell me about that moment when they led you into your cell and shut the door behind you. <sighs> I don't really talk about that because I don't like, I don't like to... Uh, I can't really remember much of that day. Um, but it Sitting was Sitting there knowing that you didn't do it. Yeah. Because you go to prison and everybody knew was there. Oh, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. 
So they're all the same. They're all singing from the same key. But yeah. you knew. Wow. That's pretty intense. Isn't and, it? and I, l- l- but I'm I never realised this is one of the biggest scandals yeah. MG ever. And so, we don't. Also, by the way, we don't lock people up in this country. You know, there are people walking the streets oh. who have, you know, oh, you yeah. know, killed other people. Yeah. Who have stabbed them, shot mm. them. You know, they don't go to prison. What or have come here on a boat and thrown they, away yeah. their papers. What are, they putting, free... what are they putting her in jail and, for? And and these people. So so the real tragedy of the story of Horizon is not only was it their livelihood, right, and not only did they try and cover themselves because they got no support from the post office, then they had legal representation that said oh you might as well admit it and now however many years on i mean it is absolutely now nick wallace is a, a really good investigative journalist who's on the show tonight he's been behind this lord james mm. abuthnot as well this is still going on but she went to jail for nine months that's I mean, awful because what i suppose people don't know is that you go to jail that's not really the end of it because when you come out of jail presumably you've got no credit rating no. your life has been ruined you've probably been written about in the newspapers so your reputation has been trashed I mean, you, you have to start all over again. And then you, you look at you look at the. You post, can't get a job. No, and 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 these people, their lives were decimated. And the post office response to that is, you know, um, well, we're very sorry, but they basically trusted a bit of dodgy software, if yeah. you like, over their own workers and hung them out to dry. Yeah. And they have no answers. And it's and it's it's not it's not going to go away too soon. But I have to say, genuinely, honestly, it, it and not because I'm doing it, but it is a really interesting mm. documentary. It the is. Horizon it's a massive, massive um, miscarriage of justice. Which happens a lot, doesn't it, in this country? I mean, the, the, I mean, the other per- person on tonight was, I mean, it's extraordinary. N- Nicola Arch. Mike, she looked at me and she went, you know, my partner and I planned to kill ourselves because there was no way out of it. Jesus. And we said, what? And she said, yeah, because nobody believed us. We yeah. were ostracised. School gates, local community, screwed. N- like wants she to said, to the us. judge is accusing her of stealing money from pensioners, mm. from the Crown. Mm. It's outrageous, isn't it? So it's on at seven o'clock. Wow. How exciting. Thank you very much. Very good. Now, what about today's news? Because uh, there's a few things I need to get Mm. your view on, right? Mm. Grant Shapps, he was once Home Secretary, Mm. wait for it, Mm. for six days. Mm. Do you think he accomplished anything in that time? I think Grant Shapps has had the most extraordinarily large amount of ministerial jobs and isn't particularly dynamic. He reminds me a little bit of your producer. Yes, but a little bit older and not quite as attractive. Well, you know, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, um, but of course, but Shaps is an but we've all worked with people, and I know you yeah. don't necessarily want to talk about previous places of work. No, but no, we've no. all worked with people yeah. who have been so useless yes. that they could only ever do a job for a short period of time, and they'd have to be promoted because you couldn't fire them for being useless. No. So somehow they would float newspapers. You don't these say people. you've worked in television and know people <laughs> like that, Mikey. Well, listen, I've only just started working in television, You're but in good. newspapers we used to have yeah. people. We had a guy uh, once at the Daily Express who was a designer. Um, and uh, his name, I, mean, I should, probably shouldn't say his name, um, but he was, a, he, was a, he was a former sort of art director of yeah. one newspaper, right? But he'd been made redundant crap, loads of times. He just wasn't very good. No. Um, he had sort of two tricks and he would stand around and he would always do this with his hand. He would sort oh. of look at things and go like that. Um, and he would get hired for a, for a year. So he got hired for a year by the Express. He would revamp the paper, which would always include making... They'd go, what we should do is have some nibs on the front page, which are these things here, little short stories. Nibs. So they'd get nibs, right? So let's do, well, call of nibs because it'll be more on the, on the front. OK, fine. And instead of having, you know, uh, capital letters as a headline, he'd make it into upper and lower case. That, that'll be good. He'd charge him about half a million quid. And then he'd leave after a year and nothing really had changed. The circulation was still going down. And he'd go off to another paper and do exactly the same thing. And he just used to go round Fleet Street. And that was his job. Brilliant. 
And I thought to myself, you know, when I'm in my dotage, that's what I want to do. Just completely make yourself, con everybody. Com make yourself completely... In, I mean, Grant Shapps, if you, I mean, I'm a big fan of Ben Wallace. He's resigned. Yes. I think Ben Wallace could have been the leader of the Tory party. He decided so. not to because of his family. Um, he's obviously done what he can. I think he's concerned that we're going to... We're going to face more cuts. Yeah. Grant Shapps is just a... To me, giving Grant Shapps the job says we're not going to win the next mm. election. No, exactly The Tory right. party. No, That's and also his first act was to go and say he's going to promise more money to Zelensky in Ukraine. And a lot of people now in this country are going, hang on a minute, how much more of this is there going to be? How many more times are we going to give them not money? Not against supporting Ukraine, but we do have no army, no navy, no air force, and no, no money. tanks and no planes. But no enough. money. Absolutely. And we're giving it all to them. Mm. Let's talk about Prince Harry. Oh. He's on the front of the sun today. Um, when you say mm -hmm. um, recollections may differ, mm. I think that would be over generous. Shall I, tell, shall I tell you what it is? And, and people say to me, you're really harsh on Harry. No. The Invictus Games is a fantastic, fantastic idea. And actually, if I'm honest... But it's not his idea, though. No, but if he was behind that today, mm. but he cannot bloody well help himself because you do that whole announcement and then it's, my family haven't supported right. me and I'm this Which and isn't I was true. that... And, and, and you get to the point where you just look at it and you go, me, me, yeah. me. Which is why he and that dreadful woman, am I allowed to say that or is somebody going to get No, you should say that. Right. Oh, that's this good, is the independent republic of Mike Graham you're in now. Yeah. You know. I just feel that they always make it about them and yes. I think that's the danger, if I'm honest. And, I'm not, I'm not, and I, you know, I, Megan has very generously agreed to turn up at the closing ceremony of the Invictus Games right. and make a speech. I know many things sat, she would close just by turning she's up. She's so yeah. selfless, yeah. is what I think. Is she, yeah. She's so brilliant. You, you actually know, seriously adore her, don't you? I do. I, yeah. I, it's only a, a pretense. You, you have know. a pillow with her face on. No, I no. do not. No, no it's, a, it's a duvet, actually. Oh. But no, but the thing is, he's, he's accused the British press again, mm -hmm. uh, and the Sun in particular, uh, of uh, sort of outing him as being in Afghanistan. I can tell you for a fact, because I was working in the newspaper business then, uh, that we didn't. That every newspaper knew he was there. Not one newspaper published it. It came out because it was published in something called the Drudge Report in That's America true. and then picked up by a woman's weekly news, uh, magazine in Australia. Yep. So it was not the British press but it's that easy did for him, It's easy for him to always blame the British press. It was interesting about his criticism of the British press is he has absolutely systematically used them to his own ends when it suits mm. him. He didn't do well in that libel case and that's probably why he's scoring points. I just wish somebody... I don't know who talks to these two or they don't listen because it, it seems like every time they open their mouths they put their foot in their mouth. Well, they Everyone. only people that tell uh, them what they want to hear yeah, because that's what yeah. happened when they were in Kensington Palace if you remember she started firing people because yeah. they said to her maybe you should think about doing this and she was like you're out you know if you're not in part of the you know the inner circle uh, and the, the court, circle of truth the court of princess you know whatever she's called um, Markle then you know you're out you're not in you're not in so kind of them listen a lot of people a lot of people say that I'm unfair and, and that he's had a hard time. I acknowledge he's had a hard time. I also acknowledge that he lost his mum. I also acknowledge, but so is his brother. So is his brother. Yeah. Who's married to a grafter. The future, I think, of the British monarchy, I think Kate. So. And, I, and, and, you know, three great kids. She does the school run. I know that because it's around where I do, right? And then... And then does what she does, and it's not about her with the Mark with Markle and whatever his name is, the ginger one. It always seems to be there's always there always has to be a point at which they go woo is me, yeah. and that just annoys people. Yeah, right, to I be mean fair. because he even said his family, as you say, didn't help him out, and he was on a fetal position on the floor. Um, as some people have pointed out, he clearly doesn't remember most of what he did at various times because that was during the period when he was out gallivanting around in and out nightclubs, taking drugs, taking drugs, having, up. having a great time, by yeah. the way. Yeah. And I know that that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't 
suffering inside. But then in an interview he gave in 2017 to Barani Gordon, she told he told her that Prince Harry was brilliant. Uh, Prince William had yep, been brilliant helped him at out. helping him out and telling him he should get therapy. I said... Um, they can't both be right, can I they? know you know my dad's dead, but I thought I'd just Is say he? this. Well, only because I would say this. I said to him before he passed... <laughs> We're not playing bingo in here, you know. granddad's dead. Is this, right? I genuinely believe within five years he will be back in this country with his ginger tail between his mm. legs and she will live in California with his two kids and live off it forever. I, I, yeah. And it sounds a terrible thing to say. Years and years ago, I met an eminent journalist who remain anonymous who went... He's not thinking with his brain, is he? He's not. Mega Mark. No. I'm not trying to be rude or disrespectful, right. but he's But a that doesn't bit... last, I'm afraid. No, of course um, it And also... And you and I would know that. Yes, she yeah. now is talking about, uh, but not officially, but mm. unofficially, her friends are saying that she's getting back on Instagram. Right. And she's going to be getting a million dollars So we've gone from the most perfect princess in the world yeah. to somebody who can't stand for president, is no good in films, mm. who's now going to get a million dollars to promote what? She's going to sell some candles that smell like her feet, apparently. I mean, what? It, that's huh? another thing. What? Unlike the... What is the other one? Gwyneth Paltrow. You, they smell of... Ooh, not her feet. No, not no. her feet. Probably worse than her feet. Something other than her feet, yes. yes. Yeah, we're so not going Meghan, there. Imagine if you're Meghan Markle, you've gone from that to selling candles that smell of your feet. It's not great. It's Do you not. think we should bring out a range of I candles? I think we should. The Independent Republic yeah. of Mike Graham. Can, Why can not? you look through the glass? I make it smell... Your producer and the master of the dark arts, David Levine, are munching on cake. Yeah. The Master of Dark Arts, we don't want to go there with uh, no. any kind of uh, scent, I think. No. But maybe we could have scent of Aaron. Scent of Aaron, perhaps. I believe that Aaron might well be Dave's offspring. There's something <laughs> particularly of the night about both of them. Dave's got a name with the smell of despair. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, mate, I'm really glad. Thank you for having me on. Um, seven o'clock tonight. Seven o'clock tonight. JK investigates a Horizon story. Absolutely unbelievable stuff that this happens in what is supposed to be a civilised country. Yeah. They lock people up for stuff like this. It is, it is unbelievable. It it's is. on at seven. And um, thank you for, for listening. But you will be listening because Mike Graham is the Don. He's the thank man. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, keep watching because we've got more to come in the next hour of the show. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.